terrorism is making headlines on a daily basis. In the bachelor security studies, we urge students to analyze terrorism and counterterrorism from an interdisciplinary perspective. How can we explain the rise of ISIS in the Middle East and Western countries? Are we witnessing the coming of age of a new right-wing extremist wave of terrorism? How do states and societies deal with terrorist attacks? And what are the international responses towards terrorism? Today, we will further discuss these issues of terrorism and counterterrorism and what it means to study them within the Bachelor Security Studies. My name is Dan Wegemans and I'm the program director of this Bachelor program uh, and also a researcher in the field of radicalization and terrorism. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Bart Schuurman. Bart works on a number of projects that seek to understand the involvement in terrorist groups, lone wolves, pre-incident indicators of terrorist intent and capability, as well as the reintegration of violent extremists. And um, maybe most important is that Bart is one of the lecturers in the Bachelor of Security Studies uh, here at Leiden University um, of the course Terrorism and Counterterrorism. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. Um, today, I would like to ask you a number of questions on this course, what students can expect, uh, and what the most important lessons is you'd like to teach them about terrorism and counterterrorism. I'd like to just ask you a number of random questions, basically. Uh, and maybe as an in in uh, initial question, why did you decide to focus on this phenomenon of terrorism? How did you become a terrorism scholar? Sure, yeah, I don't think it was really one conscious decision, right? I was doing a master's in Utrecht uh, right now already quite a few years ago, more than I care to remember. Uh, and I was initially looking a lot at more classical interstate warfare, guerrilla warfare, and looking for a PhD. And in that process, I came to Leiden. And here the focus was much more on the domestic terrorism and counterterrorism. So I kind of switched topics and I went from uh, Clausewitz and interstate warfare and I kind of became involved in this really burgeoning field of terrorism and counterterrorism with a specific focus here at Leiden at that time on domestic developments, on homegrown jihadism, for instance. I remember uh, that we both started here at the Center for Terrorism and Counterterrorism back in the day. And um, you did this study on, I think, pre-incident indicators, right? Which was about what can the police and other instances see um, before a terrorist attack happens? Do you remember that too? How was it uh, for you to start on that project? That was a lot of fun. So that was a project that came to us through the Dutch National Police. They were interested in you know, getting our help to see if we could find behavioral indicators. If you're looking at a group of suspects, are there some signs that they may be up to preparations for a terrorist attack? So we got this project, we got access to the police to all kinds of really interesting data, uh, police interrogations, police files more generally. So it was a really fun project to do. Um, fun is maybe not the right word in this context sometimes, but uh, it was definitely very interesting. Yeah, so, so that's also something I learned from my own research, and I'm interested in how you view that is uh, I started my own work in um, the summer after the uh, terrorist attack in Norway of Anders Bjørn Breivik, as you know. And I went to Norway uh, in the year that followed and I studied a number of uh, different aspects of these terrorist attacks. So what happens after a terrorist attack, but also how does the trial evolve of a terrorist that's being arrested and um, how does a society respond to that? And when I first learned about this and the opportunity to do this project, I was really excited, right? This is this 
thing that happened and it was uh, a very tragic thing that happened. And then I traveled to Norway and I saw what it did to a society, what, what, the, what the victims were like. I spoke to quite a lot of people who survived the attack, but also family members who did not, uh, uh, of, of family members of victims who did not survive it. And I remember that I returned home and that the thing um, that stood with me most is how complex and how tragic the whole thing was. And what I remember is how difficult uh, this field of study is to work in, uh, both emotionally as well as gaining access to the right sources, how you deal with particular uh, ethical questions. Is that something you also encountered during your research? Well, I mean, it's certainly tricky. Uh, I think what we're seeing also right now, especially post what happened in, uh, in, in Washington early this year, this definitional debate, right, what is terrorism? And I see it, we see it there, we've seen it in the past, this label being used against opponents and not so much as a neutral term with which we seek to delineate a particular subject so we can understand it better and so we can perhaps devise better countermeasures. So I think this whole ongoing debate of what is terrorism makes this still a very difficult field kind of to get to grips with. And I agree with you. I mean, getting the data can be very difficult, can be challenging. At the same time, I think there's still so many opportunities for getting to new information, to getting to new data, for doing things um, that maybe in other fields like criminology have been uh, quite well established that you can still apply to the study of terrorism and hope to find something new. So there's still a lot of ground to be covered, which makes it challenging, but makes it also very interesting, dare I say, sometimes even fun to get into as a student, as a scholar. I remember um, you were writing you were writing your dissertation on the Hofstadt Group, and um, maybe as a some byproduct of the uh, um, the previous project on uh, on the pre-incident indicators, is that you got access to these files of uh, of the police and the public prosecutor, I believe, um, and that you had to study these files in depth, and that every time you had to uh, go to these archives and spend days and days in these. Uh, uh, in these archives, what, what do you remember from that, and, and what could students learn from your experience on that? Oh yeah, that I mean that whole phase of looking at archives in detail. I think that took months. At one point, I went to Australia for similar reasons. So people were like, oh, you went to Australia for work? That's great, and it was. But you had to realize that I spent every day I was there in a windowless room looking at archives. So if it was Australia, it could have been Antarctica. It didn't really matter. <laughs> uh, but it was still very interesting. And I think the main thing that kind of stands out to me now, looking back on getting access to material like that is it's not so much difficult like you have to go through the right procedures it just takes time and i think that's a challenge because in terrorism studies maybe also for students of course writing bachelor thesis for instance you don't have a year in which you can spend six months on getting access you have three months so i think many cases and it's not so much that you can't find this kind of stuff it's just that it's not practical to go after it yeah yeah, what I, I think the experience we both had is also in, in terms of gaining access to data and learning about, for example, what drives a terrorist or what, why do people stop being a terrorist, which has been one of my main questions, um, is that, of course, you want to speak to those you're studying, right? So we both did a lot of qualitative research, did a lot of interviews, and we both have been uh, both very uh, inspired by those talks. And I think also we've been disappointed a lot and, and uh, spent much hours waiting for someone uh, not showing up and doing all these uh, things. Is that something you can um, uh, reflect on? Is it, is it, how, how was it for your project? Because in the end, it didn't stop you to continue this kind of research. No, but you're right. Um, especially in the beginning, 
it took forever to find someone who was part of this Hofstadt group that I was studying. And then it took even longer to get to convince a couple of them that they would maybe want to speak with me. And then there were lots and lots of agreements to meet that were canceled last moment. So um, again, it's not so much difficult. I'm sure someone with better social skills than myself would have done a better job. Uh, but it was more, you know, the patience required to kind of just stick with it. And in the end, you will get a couple of really interesting conversations. What, and what, what do you remember of these conversations? What did you want to learn or ask? Well, part of it was just also human interest. Many of these people were uh, men my own age who had taken a radically different path in life. So I was just interested in, you know, how did you get there? What kind of experiences or decisions formed this process in your life? Uh, a one that they often ended up going to prison for. So it was very impactful in many ways. And I wanted them to kind of spill the beans on that. And in the, the best interviews, they did. Yeah. Um, you're teaching a class in the Bachelor of Security Studies on terrorism and counterterrorism. And I think uh, it's a, a much valued course by, uh, by our current study, uh, students. What is, according to you, one of the misunderstandings you'd like to talk about in their uh, in this course what what is one of the biggest misunderstandings when you're speaking about terrorism research or the field of terrorism which you want to help students to overcome or or, or cure from well i think there's quite a few there <laughs> one that strikes me still is that you'd think for a subject that attracts so much attention from politicians media you know us as citizens as well that's been so well funded for what is it nearly two decades now it's been going on since the 1970s or even 1960s. There's so much we still don't know, which in a way isn't surprising. I think that that happens, of course, in every field where all subjects and concepts are still ongoing debates. But in terrorism studies, there really is a lot of theorizing, often of high quality, but there's very little that we really can say to know for sure. Assumptions that have been tested and tested again using good high quality data. And that can be, I think... A, one time a little bit frustrating and a little bit confusing um, but again it's also a really interesting avenue for further research and also maybe even for students to make contributions to actual ongoing debates there's very little that is set in stone yet and i think it's also important to realize not just from an academic perspective but also as citizens so this is a point i make a lot in the, the first couple of lectures terrorism especially counterterrorism, has such an impact on our daily lives uh, even more so, of course, in countries where lots of counterterrorism takes place, Syria, Pakistan, to name a couple of examples. Uh, and a lot of it is of very, well, let's say, uh, debatable provenance. So I think as a informed citizen of a Western democracy, I think it's crucial to know a little bit about the subject that we spend so much time and effort on, and that also costs so much money and so many lives. Yeah. And what are the assumptions? How really well can we say, to know them? How much do we know for sure when it comes to reintegrating jihadists and stuff like that? How has your work been influenced by um, by the war in Syria over the last couple of years? We, of course, also have a course which is called Case Study Syria, in which we um, study uh, many different aspects of these wars. This is an interdisciplinary program where we, in which we say you need to have different lenses or analytical tools to really understand or grasp this phenomenon. And we do it for... The Syrian case, and we've seen that a lot of attention um, has been paid uh, in the headlines, in the media, in, in academia, on um, people traveling to Syria, foreign fighters, um, and I think it's almost in a in a well, uh, it has it resembles a certain. 
view that we've also seen after the war on terrorism, after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, where this huge influx of terrorism research uh, has happened. Um, How how has your work been influenced and and what do you do with these kind of uh, uh, events? Well, I mean, so the war in Syria and the foreign fight of Norman sounds a bit strange maybe to say, but it isn't actually one of the subjects that I've spent a lot of time on. So I've mostly been looking at uh, homegrown jihadism. More recently, I've also been spending a lot of effort looking at neo-Nazism in places like Germany, Scandinavia, etc. But I've also been really interested in the field of terrorism studies, how it develops. And I think what what you're mentioning here is really spot on. What you see a lot, I think, is there's a sudden interest spike in a particular subject that was Syria for a while, foreign fighters, it was lone actors for a while. Raivik, exactly. Raivik, exactly. It was specifically people who were returning as foreign fighters. It was women within that subpopulation. Now it's definitely right-wing extremism. And I think it's understandable and correct that we follow the latest trend, but only to a certain degree. And I think what we as a field suffer from is this continuously trying to hop on the latest trend. And then we describe that a little bit. And of course, there's also lots of good work going on. But we generally we describe the contours, we know a little bit about it, and then we move on to the next hot topic. And I think that really stands in the way of getting getting to some you know better understanding, addressing some of these long-standing core issues, uh, because the people who look at these more underlying themes, yeah, there's not so much of that going on. It's harder to get funding for anything that isn't quite topical. So this is also one of those areas that I think students need to be aware of. You already touched upon it. So what? What is the issue we need to focus on more? What is an under-investigated question? And I think I know you're doing a current project, which which really um, well tells that story. Uh, maybe you could expand a bit about that. And the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always happy to do some shameless self-promotion. <laughs> well, no, no, you're not because I'm asking you. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, this project. So um, it's a, it's asking why do people who become extremists, which for me are people who want to radically change society and to have a revolutionary, different way of doing things, and or use violence to get what they want. So people who subscribe to jihadist views, who are neo-Nazis, why do people who say they believe in all that stuff not actually using terrorism to get what they want? Because That's one of the, I think, striking things, is that most people who are terrorists, there's a much larger group of people who think like them, who are in the same groups as them, who have the same backgrounds when it comes to education and social economics and where they grew up but they don't cross this line to actual terrorist violence so i want to know what sets these people apart and i think this is something that we can uh you know what's really interesting i think academically but can also help prevention work it can help us better understand what kind of mechanisms might be useful for keeping people from crossing this ultimate threshold so i think more generally speaking that we need to really disaggregate what it means to be involved in terrorism. I think for a long time we've looked at this too broadly, as if we're trying to understand crime by lumping all types of criminal behavior together and then trying to come up with some kind of average explanation for why people become involved. But as you have different types of criminality and different pathways leading to them, and perhaps different backgrounds of the people more likely to be involved, the same will apply to terrorism. And I think we're beginning to see lots of work taking this kind of angle, uh, and I hope that my project will make a make a good contribution to it. Do you already have some insights? I remember one of the people I spoke to in the past who was completely involved in the support for ISIS uh, group, and the, he was, as you could say, he was involved in a in a radical group or a radical supportive sphere. 
Um, and I asked him the question because I knew you were doing research and I was really inspired by, by asking the question, why don't you go or why don't you do something, right? If you're so much in favor of them, uh, what keeps you here? And his, his argument was, um, well, I would like to, uh, but I don't have the money to travel to Syria. So he gave a very practical argument while at the same time saying, well, I'm ideologically, I'm fully supporting them. And I, I would really think all the people joining ISIS are, are heroes in a sense. Um, so I was surprised by this very practical argument. I'm still not sure. And this, of course, is one of the difficult things of our research to, to learn how to interpret it, right? Is this true what he says or is it just an excuse? Um, and is there a different reason, such as fear or, um, or, or, or another uh, practical reason for it? Um, is there, do you already, from your research, do you already have any ideas why people don't join or don't uh, uh, commit violence? Sure, yeah. So I think, for instance, taking your example, I would guess maybe that his ideological commitment isn't as high, yeah. right? So everyone claims they believe truly in a cause, but how many are actually willing to give up important relationships, for instance, or who are willing to give up the chance at a career, at an education? And there you can already see a divergence. There's also quite clear differences, I think, in uh, the degree to which people are able to exercise self-control. So people who are tend to be more violent, tend to have lower self-control. And I think one very interesting thing happening at the group level is all of these groups tend to share this notion that violence is legitimate, right? So they claim, yes, we agree, it's necessary, everyone can use it. But what do they do in practice? What do they actually do to achieve the goals they say are so important? And I think you see in many cases they don't do anything at all. So it's more about this shared identification and drinking some beer, uh, maybe going to a riot. In other cases... They say, yes, violence is important, but what we do in practice is we try to get local electoral success, for instance. This is very prevalent among German neo-Nazis. And then they kind of postpone the violence. So once they're in power, then they'll do all those horrible things, which is still very troublesome. But in the right here and now, that kind of thinking about strategy does mean uh, they're less likely to be a terrorist threat. And the obverse, for instance, for many jihadist groups is that they don't believe in anything else that can get them what they want but violence. So there, there's a much stronger... Um, yeah, let's say that the, the, the way the thinking about how to get what they want, the thinking about strategy, I think is also something that really determines whether a group will take a turn towards terrorist violence or use different means. And we see such turns towards violence also in much smaller groups, in much newer groups. So there's a couple of really interesting things going on that I hope to unpack a bit more going forward. I could also think of these groups that, of course, they, they serve various purposes, right? They, they serve a purpose of, of, of sense-making. They uh, provide you with uh, practical, uh, well, protection, for example, in, in, in certain areas. Uh, but also they provide people with friends and, and, and the social group to belong to. And I, I could imagine that if that's the sole thing or the most important thing you try and find within a group, then, then violence is not a primary driver of, of Exactly. Yeah. And I think something I'm seeing already in this project of ours is uh, that the people who are extremists but not involved in terrorist violence, their, you know, their biographies or their interviews, they stress much more that they were looking for somewhere to belong, that they were looking for a sense of meaning, that they attach great importance to the group itself. And those themes also emerge with the people who use terrorism, but it's, it's, much, more, it's much less likely to play an important role. Your course is um, called Terrorism and Counterterrorism in the, in the Bachelor of Security Studies. Um, 
So let's have a short uh, focus on this counterterrorism thing. What what do you see when you reflect on on current day or contemporary counterterrorism strategies? What what strikes you or, or uh, what worries you? Well, I think one thing that's slightly well, maybe it's an understatement. One thing that worries me a bit is also looking at the difference between extremism and terrorism. It's not to get too detailed here, but I think we focus a lot on people who use the actual violence, which is correct. We may kind of let people who are extremists in their thinking, so who want far-reaching change, who are in favor of violence, although not using it themselves, we may let those people kind of slip under the radar. So, for instance, what happened in the U.S. with so many people storming the Capitol and the, you know, the, the clear support for far-right views, most of those people won't use terrorism. But I think they represent a bigger threat, in some ways at least, than groups like Al-Qaeda or IS, because their capacity for really you know, achieving revolutionary change, for instance, because they are, they are, their ideas are, you know, in favor in government or they have somehow found a foothold in all kinds of institutions is much lower. So I think the potential for extremists by, you know, becoming kind of mainstream, by achieving positions of political influence, they have the potential to be much more, you know, societally destructive than the infrequent, if still very, uh, deadly and and horrible terrorist attacks that we've seen over the past uh, couple of years. So, what would you advise students, um, or how how do you invite students? I mean, that's maybe the better way of putting it um, to look at these strategies. What is something you teach them about about counterterrorism and how to study it or how to understand it? What what is the main lesson or takeaway? For, for well, them? one thing we look a lot at is to try and get a uh, not so much a perspective on the, the means being used, but the circumstances un- under which a particular counterterrorism tool is effective or not. So we talk a lot about the role of public support, for instance. It doesn't matter so much what you do, you could say, as a state. Uh, it matters much more whether the public thinks what you're doing is acceptable given the circumstances. And if they do, you can, in a way, get away with a lot. But if they see you as crossing a particular threshold of what's acceptable then as a government, you're likely to pay a very heavy price in legitimacy, for instance. And it can work two ways. If, if governments overstep what is seen as legitimate counterterrorism, this can work to the favor of their non-state terrorist opponents. But terrorists themselves are also facing a similar constraint. If they engage in violence uh, that is, for instance, seem deemed excessive in terms of who they target, then they might risk a lot of public support being lost. That means fewer recruits, fewer funding, fewer in- less intelligence, and a greater leeway for their state opponents to do whatever they want in an attempt to capture or kill them. So I think this is one particularly interesting variable here. So what is your role as an academic and, and other students as fu- future academics in, in, in the broader societal perspective, right? What, do you, what can you contribute to this whole discussion on a societal level? How can you... What is your role? Well, I think there's many ways in which you can envision a role here. I, I personally think it's important to try and kind of step back. And that's also why I personally uh, try to not look so much at the here and now. I don't want to be an analyst in such a, in a sense, but more the, the broader trends. And in, from, in my case, that's trends or that's explanations for why people become involved in terrorism or not. Um, I think there's also a lot of work to be done on how states deal with terrorism and extremism, what their own role might be in flagging it, in maybe perpetuating it in a sense by mistakes they made uh, inadvertently or otherwise. 
So I think critical distance, in other words, is something really important and to challenge any assumptions you may have. Yeah. And I think we try in our course to uh, to really do that. And we offer a lot of perspectives on terrorism and counterterrorism, not just from the perspective that we as lecturers ourselves enjoy working with, but also with some that we may not agree with, but we do think are really important for students to become acquainted with. So, and you're... A historian by training, right? You uh, are more or less, uh, I would say. I, I, I would say you're not anymore, right? You're, you've extended uh, the boundaries of, uh, of your analytical uh, game, I would say. Um, so how does that interdisciplinary perspective work in your own research as well as in, in, the, in the lectures you're giving? How, how does that work? Well, I mean, terrorism, there's not really one particular field of it, right? So it's it's a subject that so many different disciplines have a say in. You've got psychologists, you've got political scientists. You also have some historians, right? You have uh, people with a background in economics looking more at country-level data and such. So so many, many people make a contribution that in our course also we want to reflect this. And again, that's not so much about saying that we're, you know, that we may use these methods ourselves primarily, but it's about showing students the variety of ways from which you can approach the subject and what that means for what exactly you're looking at, for instance, what level of analysis you're using, maybe also some insights into the methodological tools that might go along with that. So we aim to give them a really broad introduction, I think. I would agree. Um, I got two questions for you. And one of them is, if I were to give you um, and your students uh, a lot of research funding um, to do any research you'd like, what would be a future research project you'd like to do, which is maybe impossible or um, maybe you can't do it out of time reasons, but if all the, uh, well, if, if you got all the, the options for future research, what do you want to study still? What, what will your next book be about? <coughs> Sorry, Dan. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> what will my next book be about? That's a great question. I, I don't really know, actually. I think there's so much where again it isn't so much that it's difficult to get data but just takes so much time so if i had unlimited funding i probably well i probably try and go deeper uh on trying to understand how and why people become involved in terrorism or why they don't or why they take a you know a particular route within extremism yeah. because to really get to know or to get the answers to questions uh, like this you need to dig into people's backgrounds you need to dig into their past lives you need to interview them you need to track these people people down try and get access to them all of that takes time so if i had this funding if i had maybe students who were you know hoping to uh, to, to get on a project like this and help me that's what we would do there's so many questions still left to ask i, I realized when uh, with the project i'm doing at the moment with uh, with two of my colleagues which is on the intergenerational transmission of uh, of extremist ideas so how do people ch children growing up in extremist families what kind of influence has that on them? And um, every time we're working on this project, I'm um, still aware that we that there's still so much ground for us to cover, right? As terrorism scholars, and uh, um, so I'm very much also looking forward to uh, to that project being finished, uh, but also to your next uh, book uh, coming out. Um, my final question I'd like to ask is: um, What do you hope for the students who join the Bachelor Security Studies? Um, to uh, to have learned after they finished it or after having finished your course? What do you want them to be? Well, I, I hope they're, in a sense, generalists. 
about modern terrorism. So if they were at a, you know, once we can do this again, at some kind of dinner party or they were just over at their parents, that they can speak to, you know, the developments of modern terrorism. So let's say in the 20th century, what does it look like? What kind of terrorism have we seen? What kind of forms of counterterrorism have been deployed? Do we know anything about why one counterterrorism tool works in one setting but not in the other? And I also hope that they can speak a little bit about where terrorism research comes from. What are some of its successes? What are some of its shortcomings? Why do we have these shortcomings? What can be done about them in the future? And I hope they're very able to reflect critically uh, also on the definitional side of things. And I know this often sounds very academic. Oh, here we have definitions again. <laughs> but I think particularly in this subject where you know labeling a group or a person as terrorist or not carries very grave repercussions also in terms of criminal law, for instance. It matters a lot who we see as terrorism, for what reasons, what behavior we include under that heading. Are states exempt, for instance, from being called terrorists or not? I hope students can kind of speak to that discussion. I don't really mind where they come out on it in terms of their own opinion, as long as they know the different viewpoints that are uh, prevalent. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bart Schuurman, uh, for this talk. And um, I wish you all the best. And I hope uh, for the students who are convinced in joining the program that this uh, that they'll meet you in uh, in two years thanks dan